0: Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hello, hello, welcome to session 185 of Selling the Couch. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to today's episode. We are surviving winter Personally, me barely surviving winter here. I don't know. It's not that like we have had a crazy amount of snow, but it has been unbelievably cold here, even as actually typically with these interviews, I record them just a few weeks early just so that I always have episodes ready to go out. But I'm recording this here at the tail end of January, and it is supposed to be four degrees tonight, actually around like 7pm. And I'm not looking forward to it. (laughs) And so if you're listening, especially if you are in the Midwest, or even in the far northeast or anywhere where there's a lot of winter weather, um, I hope that you're doing okay. And that especially I know that these winter months can bring stress of client cancellations and all of those different things. And I hope that you're taking good care of yourself today. Today's podcast interview is all about building a sex therapy practice. This is a topic that I have not had on the podcast, but I think the person who I'm interviewing is a wonderful expert because she has literally done this from the ground up. My guest is Nazanin Moali. Nazanin is a clinical psychologist out in Torrance, California, and her website is at oasis.com to care.com that's o-a-s-i-s the number two and then the word care.com and today we're talking all about what Nazanin has learned along the way in terms of what made her get into private practice how she focused on that area of sexuality what other additional trainings did she get in sex therapy I even asked this question because this is really just not an area that I have as much familiarity with. And so does Nazanin think it's smarter to sort of be a general sex therapist or is it better to niche down into certain things? And that answer, I, to be honest, when I asked that question, I was expecting a certain answer and I I got a different answer. And so I was pretty surprised. So I think you will be too. And, And then we talk about some of the unique ways that Nazanin is actually marketing her niche while coming from a place of service, so that marketing doesn't seem like it's what we think of as marketing, but more just from a place of wanting to provide psychoeducation and and serve at the end of the day. Today's podcast is supported by Turning Point HQ. Uh, This is a brand new sponsor on the STC podcast, but David and I call him Dave. Dave and I have gotten to know each other over the past two years. He was a previous STC podcast guest, and honestly, Dave is one of the most kind and generous and helpful people that I know. And with sponsors, you guys know I'm, I'm super discretionary in terms of who I share uh, the STC audience with. And Dave, when uh, we talked about sponsorship, he was one of those people. I just I had zero doubt. And so Dave is a financial planner, uh, specifically for therapists, and his whole mission is to transform your relationship with money. I know for many of us, uh, money is something that, and the money stories that we have often been told, it impacts a lot of how we do business. It impacts how we approach things like retirement, investing, and all of those things. And Dave understands that, and he comes from just a very hard centered place to help us build out an investment in a retirement portfolio. Dave actually has this really cool guide. Uh, it's absolutely free to download, and it's called The 7 Money Mistakes That Hold Therapists Back. You can find it over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash turningpointhq. And that guide has a lot of the things that, that can hold a lot of therapists back. And actually, if you go through that link as well, you get $200 off any service that Dave provides. And we'll get right to today's podcast session. So here's my conversation with Dr. Nazanin Moali from oasis2care.com. Hi Nazanin, welcome to Selling the Couch. Hi
1: Alvin, I'm very excited to be here.
0: I'm so grateful for you. I feel like we've known each other for gosh, a couple of years, definitely, and you're doing some pretty amazing things not just in the world of private practice, but really for your community talking about also just breaking the stigma around sex therapy and all these things. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for our conversation and excited to just to share this with you.
1: Awesome. Same here.
0: I wanted to start right at the beginning, which is, how did you know that you actually wanted to go into private practice?
1: It's a very interesting story. It includes you.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> Sorry.
1: Yes. I, I don't think I shared with that. Shared that with you before. So what happened is, I always did like my trainings, everything in hospitals. I had my supervisors. That some of them maybe they did like one afternoon in private practice. But most of the career was, it was focused on working in organizations and also teaching. And I didn't even think it's possible to have a a full time practice that you can make a living out of it. So what happened is it's very interesting that after I finished my postdoc, I finished my postdoc in Northern part of California and it was part of organization. It was a cohort of 20. The way that it was working was that they were hiring postdoc at the end of the year, like all of them hmm. at that hospital and What was interesting is I needed to come back to California because my husband was in like uh, North, uh, southern California because my husband was living in l a and So I wasn't able to get a job there because of my situation. And I remember how challenging it was. We were going around the room and everyone was hired at this wonderful hospital (laughs) at the end of the year. And I was the only person without the job. And I was feeling like a failure. And I moved back to Southern California and I started interviewing at hospitals, like community mental health. And I just didn't think it's a possibility to do private practice so what happened is as I was interviewing I was feeling kind of defeated I don't want to do this this wasn't a good fit for what I wanted then one day I clearly remember I was getting out of the gym and I was listening to your podcast which just randomly (laughs) found your podcast and I know like you you were interviewing someone they were telling us like you know the number is just a matter of number and it's not hard to do it and all of that and I was like something clicked in me I said, Oh, so maybe I can give this a shot. What would be the worst thing that can happen? And I started running the numbers and I'd say, okay, I'm going to do it three months of trial and see if financially it makes sense. And it was such a life changing experience because again, when I started, I realized how much I love this work because in private practice, as many of your listeners, they know, You get to see the people that you do good work with, Mm. very different than like hospitals or other organization because the other people are booking for you and you're doing the work in the hours you do. So I think for me, it was a wonderful kind of life-changing realization. And it's significantly easier to do than what I imagine. And I, I have you to thank <laughs> for that because I thought this is just an impossible thing. And the more I listen to your podcast and the other like private practice business podcasts, as I learned, this is something completely doable. We were just not taught how to do it in graduate school.
0: I had no idea. Thank you. I'm like I'm really honored that I played a small part of this journey. I, I don't know, I was thinking as you were talking, I feel like, Well, a couple of things. One, I feel like private practice for many people feels like this big, almost amorphous thing. Mm -hmm. right? And I think that sort of the bigness and the unknownness of it makes it really hard to take that first step. right? Right. You did two little things, which I loved. And I was wondering if you could even speak a little bit more. One is that you did a three-month trial run. So what made you sort of pick the three months? And then you said you crunched the numbers. So What did you like, how did you crunch the numbers and what made you do that instead of just kind of jumping right in?
1: Right. So uh, two things about that. I did three-month trial because I said, okay, oh, what would be the, and I'm like always a little bit kind of the worry side, what would be the reasonable amount of time <laughs> for me to be unemployed? Because I consider like, and I feel horrible now about it, doing private practice, kind of being unemployed, because it seemed very abstract to me, the idea of it. That's how I was like, okay, maybe like three months would be a good time. And also give me good enough time to practice and like market and all of that the business side of it, to figure that part of it. And I I was talking to my husband about it, about like, okay, how much I want to do private practice. And I told him I don't want to lose money. And he told me, you know, your field is the way it works. It's not, you, we don't have huge overhead. He said like, okay, if you don't want to lose money, let's calculate what would be the number for you that, that you need to make in order to pay for the overhead. And the number was like, interesting to know. I just needed one client per week, one client per week. Mm -hmm. to make for my overhead and that was such a relief for me because I said okay I can do one client per week again I purposely chose an office that wasn't Expensive and I was very mindful of my cost beginning, but then it helped me to see. Okay, I guess the worst case would be I would break even and like knowing that again, I, as soon as I started, I was very lucky that was able to be profitable like first, first month. But I think knowing that number was a, a huge relief for me.
0: I love that sort of perspective because I think many of us think, Oh, I need to have. You know, definitely more than one client. I need to have 10 clients, 15 clients in order to be profitable. But sometimes there is this discrepancy Mm -hmm. between what the reality is and sort of what we think in our mind. Right. You're like full of these little things that you do, which I like love because it's like so mindful. So you looked at the number and then you found an office space that fit within that number which is different than I think sometimes what colleagues can do, which is they like may pick like an area, right? And then because of that, real estate prices are already a certain amount, right? And so then they're now going into getting like an uber nice office, which I mean, it's cool. Like I think for me, I think I sort of orient the same way you do, which is I'd like to go as lean as possible Mm -hmm. and then build out, right? As opposed to like going really high and then always having that fear of like, Am I going to be able to pay that amount? You know,
1: right? And you can always upgrade. You know, all you need is a room <laughs> with couple chairs, <laughs> and then to start, like that's all the, all we need. And then after that, the more that you expand your practice the more you can go bigger on things. But I think it's, for me at least, as you mentioned, I'm I'm more cautious. It's important for me to have a peace of mind versus having this fancy office and then kind of being worried about if I'm able to pay the money for the rent and the furniture and all of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think those kind of thoughts can definitely consume our mind, right? And impact both the clinician we are, like the ability to be present with clients, as well as just our ability to think creatively as a business owner. At least for me, that's what I sort of think as well. How did you find that first office?
1: And I was so clueless in the entire process. (laughs) I googled office at the location, like different cities, and there's one office came up in Craigslist. Hmm. And that's, I guess, that's not how (laughs) offices usually market in my area. It just happened that the people I rented from, then there was this like uh, older psychoanalysts, like in their mid eighties, and they were advertising Craigslist. And I was lucky that they had furniture and everything. And so it's just like pure coincidence that I I saw their office. Only office I saw, I saw that they have everything as far as furniture, and it was like therapy, like psychotherapy oriented offices with different entrance and exit. And they were at the place in their careers that they were not necessarily kind of like worried about like making money and all of that. So the price was very reasonable. I think they had the lease for 40 years in that building. And (laughs) they didn't require any contracts. I was like, okay, so you can have that room. I was like, okay, great. I'll start next week. (laughs) (laughs) And it just happened that it was just worked out wonderful.
0: Um, So you ended up Starting there a couple of days a week, one day a week, or you did the whole week? What did you end up doing?
1: I did the entire week, which is very unusual because mm-hmm. like the price was like very reasonable. Yeah. Like even right now, I don't think I can find a space like that with that pricing. Again, mm-hmm. the building was older, the furniture was older, but it gave me that peace of mind that, you know, the overhead is very kind of cheaper, less expensive, and that gave me the peace of mind. And I stayed there for a couple of years and then I after, like, you know, my practice grew, I moved out of it. But I think it was wonderful for the time that I was there.
0: Hmm. When you were there, like, how do, do you remember how you got that first client?
1: Yeah. So, what I did is, I'm such a nerd in a sense that I said, like, if I'm doing this, I'm creating this Excel shit with all the ways that people say they, market their practice. I don't recommend that, but I, I think like and I, I create a spreadsheet of the things that you guys said in your podcast and, and the books and stuff. And I, I had like, I was doing everything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recommend that. And I, I was in a bunch of different kind of like psychology today, listening, psychology listing. And I got the first client through the one of those listings. And hmm. yeah, and that worked out well.
0: That's awesome. And you were private pays even from the beginning?
1: Yeah, I was private pay, but again, I wanted to make sure it works, so... Mm I set up my fee like 20% less than that was customary in my area. Again, I don't know if it's a good practice or not, but I wanted to see if this is something that's working, that was working or not. And Mm -hmm. again, the price was reasonable. The first client I saw, they were Farsi speaking. Mm -hmm. So they definitely want to see someone who's able to speak their language. So that worked out.
0: That is awesome. I mean, I think, I don't know, like I don't know that there is like one strategy around pricing, right? So... I think, at least for me in that initial stage, it's all about trying to get a client through the door and then figuring out sort of your process around not just as a clinician, but what does that whole intake process look like? What is, you know? And so I think the way you did it was smart personally. So.
1: Thank you. No, absolutely. And I think it builds confidence. If you haven't done private practice, you wanna see that like, you know, people are able to come and they're able to pay for it and they're willing to pay for it. It's not like, you know, if you have higher fee, people are not gonna pay for it. But mm. I think you're right, it's just a matter of like starting the process.
0: What made you focus on the area of sexuality specifically as a niche in private practice? So two
1: different reasons, one personal and one professional. Personal was like, you know, it's very common for people to struggle with sexual dysfunctions. I was looking at statistics. I was saying that about 40% of people in their lifetime, they face some kind of sexual challenge, sexual dysfunction. So it's very common. And when I was struggling, I didn't know even like sex therapists were existed. My partner and I, we went to. A couple's therapist for like six, seven months, and we were talking and talking and kind of processing things, which is valuable, but I didn't see any change in the symptoms that I kind of initially went to the person for, and then I after we terminated, I found a sex therapist and I went to the psychologist, she was a sex therapist. I went for. Very few sessions, like five, six sessions. And she was mostly behaviorally focused, solution focused. She gave me exercises and things and things drastically changed hmm. and kind of helped me kind of made me think, okay, this can be a great niche because again, it was wonderful that I be processing the couples therapist. But if the person was referring me to the sex therapist, things could have got resolved. Rather quickly. So I, I kept that in my mind. Yeah. And one other thing that happened was in my like training and practice, most of my training comes in the area of the eating disorders. And with clients with eating disorders, I love the work, but people tend to be chronic. It's really hard work. People are in and out of residential. And after my like built part of my practice, I realized it's hard to see acute clients. All the time, emotionally, like as far as level of care and everything. And I thought it would be wonderful if I can add a component to my practice, something that I can do, like it's going to be more solution focused, more short term. And I thought about my experience as a sex therapist. And I was always comfortable talking about sexuality. I love doing sex education. That felt like a good match. And then as I started getting the training and supervision on all of that, I realized this is wonderful because everyone to feel good. I felt like people were improving significantly faster than... You know, the clients that I see in the eating disorder world, it was very rewarding to see that the couples and individuals were recovering from the challenges that they had. Because interestingly, part of sex therapy, big part of it is sex education. Hmm. And many people, they don't have the knowledge. And when you give them knowledge and they empower them, they do significantly better. And like I was seeing people like change their challenges within a few sessions, like five, six sessions, which was amazing. So that's, a, that's why I thought like, okay, great. This is a wonderful thing that I can focus on. That was very rewarding for me.
0: I think about even my own entrance into the field. I mean, it was because like in undergrad, I, I went to a counselor and I loved that sort of the, the changes that I was able to make, you know, and there is something like so powerful about that when we find a niche that is also based on our own personal experience and having gone through it.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. And I, I guess like a, one more thing is like, I think it's important to have, I guess, at least for me, something in my practice that I feel like, you know, I see people are getting better quickly and faster. And I think like, yes, psychology and uh, psychotherapy is a process. but It's good to feel like you're helping people.
0: Yeah. Right. Something that's just a validation of the work, validation of private practice. I totally get that. This is a really silly and dumb question, so I don't know anything about the field of sex therapy. Like what additional trainings did you do, like when you realized that you wanted to go into this niche?
1: Excellent, no, I think excellent question, because I was interested in sex therapy, but what happened? I didn't learn anything that much, I guess. my graduate program, undergrad. I think I have one course in undergrad. Hmm. And one additional training I did during my graduate program, but it wasn't enough. So what I did is there are different kinds of training you do. I did this training through ASAC. So there was a local psycholo- psychologist that she she has this kind of in-person trainings and also you have to do a supervision. So she has an entire program and several therapists and psychologists that they teach the course and they have the online course and in-person course. So it covers lots of basic information about sex education, but also talks about the kind of manualized treatments that you can use for different presentation. And there are wonderful treatments for, for the issues that people think it's not kind of like, it's not kind of Resolvable or is not treatable. So it's interesting when when you learn about them, and mostly there are behavior. At least the training I had, and people when they're applying it, when they're implementing it, they get better. It's just a matter of getting right training in this area.
0: That's cool. I guess looking back at your own journey in learning, do you recommend going to a training where you get sort of that general overview on sort of dif- like different presenting concerns? Mm-hmm related sexuality or do you recommend more of a niche training? Like, I don't know, like erectile dysfunction or something, you know?
1: And I think, yes, yes. Excellent. Another excellent question. So it depends on what you want to work with. My focus is on treating people with sexual dysfunction. Mm. So I want, and again, there are not that many sex therapists in all around, even in California, in, in some states, I remember I was in the training with another social worker and she was from somewhere in Midwest and she said in three states she's the only sex therapist hmm. so it's, it's very interesting depending on what do you want to focus on if you want to do kind of like all kind of like general sexual dysfunction, it's important to have good information on that. I think niching can be helpful. It's a little bit different than therapy in a the sense that in our work, it's important to niche down. For example, if a if you are a therapist that are kind of like generalists, it's harder. I feel it's harder to get clients. You need to kind of niche down in a saturated market, at least that's my experience. But with sex therapy is a niche down a niche enough so you can do see all sorts of presentation, but also it's important to kind of know your limitations. So even for me that I consider myself more of a generalist sex therapist, there are presenting problems. I realize that I'm not a good fit. So depending on your interests, yes, you can niche down, but it's not as important as it is and kind of the like general kind of
0: psychotherapy world. What's a unique way that you've gotten, you've marketed about your services or even just gotten the word out about the services that's been surprising in terms of how it's worked for you?
1: Interestingly, my podcasting. You know that my podcast has been super helpful, and thank to you, Melvin, because sex is one of those things that people are oftentimes, at least my ideal clients, are not comfortable talking about it with their friends. They don't know what to expect to, when they're coming into to sessions. So through my podcast, I learned that people build a relationship with me before coming into my office, so they already know how I think, what's my treatment like, and it makes it much easier for them to come and talk about this kind of challenge that they have and they know what to expect. And Interestingly, like I put like my content all around on like, social media and Facebook LinkedIn all around, and even in social setting, I get shocked at how many people they know about it, like even mm-hmm. my husband's colleagues it was like very interesting that and sex is one of those topics that everyone is interested, and I think its just when you have a private form that people can listen to it on their own time, you're able to reach a broader audience
0: that's really interesting, so. I was actually gonna ask you and I think you just answered it. So it sounds like part of the why the podcast has worked is because of the sort of it gives the psychoeducation, but it's done with a respect for privacy.
1: Exactly. And I think with sex therapy, many people don't know what does that entail. Like, you know, we don't have a great representation in media. People are kind of scared. They don't know what to expect. And when you are, you get the opportunity to listen to it in like privacy of your home or your office. And no one is kind of like knowing that you're listening to that. It helps you to kind of process and kind of be comfortable with the idea of see- seeing someone. So I think that, that's a, I think podcasting is great for all sorts of kind of psychoeducation, but I think for sex therapy specifically it has been very helpful for me.
0: Now Tony, just to go a little deeper with that. So with the podcast, some of the episodes are psychoeducations. I guess how do you sort of structure the episodes? Like are they a range of different are they topic-based? Are they like psychoeducation? Do they like are they interviews? Like what are you doing with those? So
1: the way I use uh podcasting, I wanted to do mostly for psychoeducation. So I I did like now it's hundred ten episodes. First few episodes I did mostly on kind of basic psychoeducation. And then the more I put the episode out there, I realized that there are some topics that are people are more Resonating for them more and there are topics that are not, people are not, at least my listeners are not as interested. So I went deeper on the topics that people were interested in and I do lots of interviews because I believe that it's important to invite other experts and Field of sexuality is huge and there are so many different areas that I, I'm not specialized in and my one of my main goal is I don't want people to feel they're weird there's something wrong with them because they have certain kind of sexual interests because I see that a lot in my practice this feeling of shame that people feel and I'm I'm a pervert there's something wrong with me because I experience desire or desire toward this specific thing and when when we talk about it in the interviews. There are thousands and even millions of people having the same interests. So mm-hmm. I think for me, normalizing human sexuality is at the top of my list. So I do whatever I can to help people to see they're not alone and there are people that are specialized in what they need support with. So I guess that was a long-winded way of saying that. <laughs> I try to cover a broad
0: spectrum of topics. The way you said it was perfect in length and it was it was good because you said Something which just like really resonated, which is you see the podcast and you see Mark, and it sounds like you even marketing in general as a way of service, right? And so you don't look at it like every podcast episode, for example, needs to be me speaking on a topic, right? But it's more how can I use this episode or how can I use my podcast or how can I use my marketing to sort of on something way bigger than myself, right? And so by doing that, you actually attract the people that you want to work with. Does that seem accurate? Right.
1: Right. Absolutely. Again, my biggest goal, as I said, is like providing psychoeducation. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, sometimes people say like, you got to hold back on some information. And when the people are coming in, <laughs> they can get the good stuff and they pay. That's not how I see it. Again, this is something I feel passionate about and I just want to get the information out. So I guess that's my priority. And it's been rewarding for me and it's like helped my practice and everything. So as you said, the, the more that you do service and help people, the more people are interested in helping you and kind of working
0: with you. At least that has been my experience. Yeah, I mean, it's a very service. I think that sort of marketing um, is very service-based and I think it really aligns with how we naturally are as clinicians. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you a final question, which is this question, even when I was writing it up, I was like, I don't even know how to properly word this. So just to give you guys a background, this is a question, Nazina, I'm sure you've seen these in in online communities. This question has come up, right? And I feel like generally, not all the time, but generally female clinicians in private practice tend tend to deal with this more, which is when you're working in a niche like sexuality, right? There's the potential for inappropriate phone calls, all those kind of things, right? How do you screen for good fit clients?
1: Excellent question. I don't know if it is only around sex, uh, sexuality niche. I think as a therapist in private practice, we are uh, very vulnerable to all sorts of danger. My mom's uncle was the same age as her, was a psychiatrist actually in Philly, like many many decades ago and he got shot and killed by his patient. So the issue is very real. So I always keep that in mind. I think as far as how I screen out is, again, I barely have kind of clients that I feel it's not a good fit for my safety and all of that. I realized throughout the time, again, I certainly had inappropriate calls or clients that was like, they were kind of confused about what sex therapy is again? Because they don't know. So what I do is over the phone, I ask them about what what their kind of what's their goal and also uh, what they expect from sex therapy, how they're thinking they're going to get there. Because many people are confused: is it sexual surrogacy or it's sex coaching? And what is okay and what's not okay? So I give people a very detailed kind of overview of how this works. And you kind of like I think as clinicians, you develop this kind of intuitive feeling of like kind of, you have this intuition about who's safe and who might not be a good, kind of. I wouldn't feel safe with them in the room. So I developed this kind of extensive referral list. And again, I'm lucky that I know lots of sex coaches and like people in different areas. So I refer people to them when I feel kind of a little bit of uncomfortable discomfort about seeing them. And also what I noticed is not everyone is a good fit for private practice. So what happened for what I was seeing all sorts of presenting problem and one of the presenting problem that I was seeing in my practice was commonly comorbid struggle was personality disorders. Hmm. So I realized, okay, I don't feel safe with this specific population uh, because of the setting of my office, because you can just walk into my office and there's no security and all of that. Again, doesn't mean that if someone have those diagnoses, there are like necessarily dangerous, but I decided, like, I made this conscious decision. I'm not going to see this group of people because I want to minimize the risk. So I think it's important to be mindful of the feeling, the gut feeling we get as clinicians and also uh, kind of screening, having good screening over the phone. So to know that, you know, what are the red flags and kind of who would be a good referral for those group of people? So you feel good about like, referring them, but also kind of protecting your safety.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're sort of honoring both spaces, right? Right. Nazani, I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for just your heart and your willingness to to talk and just share everything you've learned. What are some of the best ways that we can get in touch with you?
1: So people can check out my private practice website. is oasis2care.com. It has our blogs and also has my podcast and all the information there. And if they want to contact me, they can find me there as well. So all of my information is there. It's oasis2care.com. Perfect.
0: And I'll put that in the show notes page which you guys can find over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session 185. Nazanin, thank you again for doing this and have a great rest of your day. Thank you
1: so much. It was lovely to talk to you.
0: Likewise. Hi there. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nazanin, especially if you are thinking about a niche in the area of sex therapy. I hope that today's podcast session has been helpful for you. Again, Nazanin's website is over at oasis2care.com and there's contact information there if you do want to get in touch with Nazanin. I was thinking about this session and all these interviews are really fun, but some of these interviews are more fun than others. So, This was just a a good conversation. And I really enjoyed getting to learn about a niche in an area that I don't have a lot of knowledge in. And so I was thinking about what I sort of learned from this conversation. And honestly, I was surprised by using the podcast to market. I knew that Nazanin was doing that, but I have never asked her sort of like the background on that. Like, what is she doing? How is she doing it? And And it's neat just that she's not just, you know, focused on, let me be the expert on my podcast, but let me bring experts together in order to do something way bigger than myself, which is to break the stigma around sex education and all of the different presenting concerns and things that many folks can really struggle with, especially in in silence. Now, you mentioned, a number of resources and a number of tips, and I wrote them down on the show notes page, which you can find over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session and the number 185. Before we wrap up, just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Turning Point HQ for supporting today's podcast session the Turning Point HQ is the result or is the brainchild of David Frank, who is a financial planner for therapists. And as I've mentioned before, uh, Dave and I actually have gotten to be good friends, just an awesome person to work with. And one of the things that Dave will help us to do is create a holistic and an intentional retirement and an investing plan that supports you to lead a really awesome life. Because ultimately, I think for many of us, it's we invest, right, to create the life that we want, and uh, it's to do it in an intentional way. And Dave, honestly, is just one of the most, like, heart-centered folks that I've ever met, and you're absolutely going to be in good hands with him. You can learn more about Turning Point HQ and the awesome services that they provide over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Turning HQ. And if you go through that link, uh, Dave actually created this seven- financial mistakes that therapists make. It's a free downloadable and uh, you can download it right there. And then you also get $200 off any any of the services that Dave provides. Be sure to mention that you heard it on STC. Have a great rest of your day and thank you again for joining me. Take good care. Bye.